for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 620 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week, Patrick Lay from Dark Horse's upcoming Death Strikes, the Emperor of Atlantis graphic novel, appears along with the holiday tradition. Patrick and I talk about this timely and timeless original graphic novel from him as artist and journalist David Moss, due in bookstores on January 23 and in comic shops on January 24. It's described this way. From 1941 to 1945, the Nazis operated a concentration camp called Terezin, 30 miles outside Prague in what is modern-day Czech Republic. The former fortress town was home to many Jewish artists, writers, musicians, dramatists, actors, and other intellectuals. More than 140,000 people passed through Terezin during the war, and while only a few thousand outlived the Nazi regime, a vast amount of their writings, compositions, and artworks survived to tell their stories. This graphic novel is based on one of these works, and the authors did not live to see it performed. Through satire and fantasy, the narrative presents many lessons for modern society on war and technology, but its greatest lesson is that none of us must ever forget that beauty and humor can be found even in the face of doom. We discuss how this book came to be, what else Patrick is working on, and the importance of this story for today's world. Then everything wraps up with my annual holiday tradition playing the audio from Twas the Dark Night Before Christmas. Don't miss next week's episode as we wrap up 2023 with another terrific conversation with another great comics professional. I'm sure you're going to enjoy what Patrick has to say. There's a lot to get to in this episode, so let's get on with the show. Patrick Lay is a cartoonist, illustrator, educator, and podcaster from Northwest Ohio. He teaches comics as an adjunct professor at Columbus College of Art and Design and has been self-publishing since 2014. And coming out the end of January is a book called Death Strikes the Emperor of Atlantis, which is based on an opera of all things. How's it going, Patrick? It's going great, Wayne. Thanks for having me on. It's good to talk with you. Now, who is going to print this book? Is this coming out from who? This is coming out through Burger Books. Um, so that's Karen Berger, uh, the founding editor of Vertigo, um, who absolute legend in the comics field. Her name is on some of my favorite books of all time. Uh, and so uh, Burger Books is an imprint of Dark Horse Comics. Cool. Cool. Very cool. Uh, it's such an interesting thing. That's just an interesting background. And I... I've got a little paragraph about it. Well, let me read this, the one paragraph that I particularly like. Well, before I get that, I see I'm so interested in this thing. I'm dying to rush headlong into it. But why don't you talk about some of the books that you've done in the past, just so people know, you know, your experience as a comics creator. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started making comics, like a, your, the bio said, in 2014. 
with like uh, an, an all ages sci-fi book called Multi. And uh, one of my best friends uh, wrote that book. We kind of co-created it and we've done five issues of that together. I'm actually working on an omnibus of collecting those issues. Um, after that, I'd also worked on a, a web comic called Screaming Mimi Kids, um, which I ran in a couple different places, but is still available on Webtoon. Um, and kind of in the middle of that, I also got an MFA in comics from the California College of uh, Arts and in San Francisco. So um, I kind of started making hobby or uh, comics as a hobby and then eventually just kept on going till it became most of my job, uh, you know, and, and I met uh, Dave in 2018. We started working on this project in 2020. So it's really occupied the past um, almost three years. Wow. Wow. Well, let me read this paragraph because this really does a nice job of summarizing what's in the book. And I got a chance to read the book. I, I could not put it down once I started. It was just amazing. It, it says, in Death Strikes, the Emperor of Atlantis. And by the way, there's a colon there. Death Strikes, the Emperor of Atlantis. And it's not Death Strikes, the Emperor of Atlantis. Except some people <laughs> might think. Uh, in Death Strikes, the Emperor of Atlantis, it is everyone against everyone. This book, like the opera, and my German is horrible, I'll give it a shot, Der Kaiser von Atlantis, that that inspired it, presents a world where Atlantis never sank, but instead became a technologically advanced tyranny, one where a power-mad buffoonish emperor declares all-out war. Death goes on a labor strike, creating a hellscape where everyone fights but no one dies. Can the spirit of life stop this terror with the power of love. And I did want to mention this this book is going to hit bookstores on Tuesday, January 23rd. And it's going to hit comic shops on Wednesday, January the 24th. So, so well, how do we talk a little bit about how you got involved in this project? You met uh, David, who is the uh, the writer and a journalist, and you you're the artist on it. How did you get involved in this project? So I met Dave Moss in 2018, like I mentioned, in Juneau, Alaska, of all places. Um, Dave's, at the time he was living in San Francisco. So even though I went to grad school there, we never met. And I'm, I'm from Ohio, and it's where I live now. And we met in Juneau, Alaska, at a um, com- convention and camp. That's put on by the Alaska Robotics uh, Comic Shop and Gallery in Juneau, Alaska. It's a really, really cool event. Highly recommend checking it out. Um, And uh, so we were at the camp portion. And one evening um, after everybody had done make was done making s'mores and and playing D&D and stuff, um, Dave and I were on the patio and he started telling me about this project that he uh, had been developing for a while, had been on his mind since he, he first came across the opera when he was a teenager. And uh, he thought it would just be the, the greatest graphic novel. And he started telling me this story about death and life and zombies. And it was such an incredible uh, premise for a story. Like, it's just an interesting sci-fi you know, horror genre story, but it also had this really, really incredible backstory of coming from an opera. The opera was written in the Terrazin uh, concentration camp in the Czech Republic, uh, it was Czechoslovakia at the time, in 1943. 
And nobody who who made the opera lived to see it performed. And so it had this just incredible backstory. And it was a super interesting, really engaging premise. Um, and so we, we spent some time talking about how he would get this independent project up off the ground. Um, and then again, in 2020, um, when he was ready to go, he got a hold of me. And uh, for a while, you know, I, you know, I read through the, the one of the earlier versions of the scripts. Um, he was at soliciting artists for sample pages so that he could build a pitch. Um, and I submitted one and we ended up working together really well and building the pitch out. And, uh, you know, when, when we heard that Burger Books was one of the options for a place that we could submit the, the book, we thought, well, if Karen Berger wants it, we're going to give it to Karen Berger, right? Like <laughs> we're, we're definitely going to, you know, that's where it's going to go. Um, so yeah, that's how I got involved with it. It was, it was so by chance and so um, unexpected, you know, you don't think expect to get a lot of uh, creative projects when you're kind of on vacation in Juneau, Alaska going. <laughs> but, but you know, it's funny how when people, like comics, people cluster together, like uh, like New York Comic Con and Baltimore Comic Con and all these other places, I know so many projects, you know, are birthed during those times, during those conventions when people after when they're not selling and stuff like that, they they go out to dinner or something together and they actually talk about projects and stuff, and so many things happen during those those off hours, quote unquote you know, during the convention stuff. So I'm not surprised that this kind of happened. Even in Juneau, Alaska, that doesn't surprise me because there's people, because I live in Florida and there's this an amazing, I came here thinking, man, I'm never going to see anybody that, that, that works on comics. And there's all these comic companies and comic creators down here. It's just an amazing place. But there's all over the place. Like in Ohio, Cleveland has all these conventions and stuff like that. And there's, you know, everybody knows San Diego and things like that, but not, yeah, up in Juneau, I'm not. I, people who make comics and who appreciate comics tend to congregate. And so when that happens, yeah. good things comes out of it. So that's yeah, they really definitely great do. You know, and and people who make comics love comics so much that it ends up being like inevitably that's what we're going to talk about, right? We're going to talk about what cool idea we had or some neat thing we just learned. But yeah, I mean, you're dead right. Comics people are all over, and there's a shockingly high talent levels just kind of everywhere you go, um, which is really exciting. Now, the, the interesting thing about this book that that it's got a full color cover. Mm-hmm. Um, did you do the cover? Who did the cover? So I drew the cover, and Lee Luffridge did the colors for us, um, which is really great. Really appreciate that from Lee. Um, but I, originally, we had conceived of the cover as being black and white as well. And then, you know, once the image went down and I had finished it up, we thought, you know, you know, you put this on the shelf next to the rest of the books. I'd really like it to, to punch. You know, I wanted to take that next step. So um, we brought in uh, Lee Leffridge to do colors for the cover. But see, now you've mentioned something that's important for people to know about the book. It's that it's... Uh... See, I, when I say black and white, people are going to think that it's there are no shades of gray, some people think. But there's a lot of shades of gray in this book. And, you know, as well as the, the, the blacks and the whites and stuff like that. So it's a very, very well done. I mean, did you find it interesting? Have you worked in black and white before or was this your first time? 
I had worked in black and white before. I'd been working in this kind of style that you see in the book, which is it's ink wash. So I've taken the ink and I watered it down and I build several different values of it. But I approach it um, a more like a watercolor painting than um, you see a lot of times in, in comics because you see, you know, folks like Lee Weeks does, does amazing ink wash work. But usually he approaches the the grays as just kind of a half tone, a place in between the black and the white. Um, and I kind of approached it as if it were a whole watercolor painting, but just in one color, um, black and white. And I'd been working in this kind of style uh, for a while now, developing it and kind of narrowing down the process, the best way to get it to print, the best way to to actually execute it on the page. And when uh, I did those sample pages for Dave and I read through the script, there are tons of these really strange sequences that take place in the realm of the unreal where imaginary things become real. And we have these kind of collage kind of pages. And I thought this is going to be perfect. We're going to have, you know, images emerging from the background and, you know, panels bleeding into each other as, you know, characters race from one side of the page to the other. This is going to, this is going to be ideal. And it really, it really came out well. It, it, like I said, I, it, it, it's unsettling is the word I keep thinking about when I read this book. But it's also, like I said, it's gripping. I could not stop reading it until I got to the very end. Because, wow, there's, there's so many interesting things that go on uh, in here. Now, we should mention the two people who wrote this originally. was One guy is Peter Kine, I think. is and Once again, my German is horrible, but it's, I think it's Peter Kine and Victor Allman were the people who created the opera, but you're right, you as you mentioned, they never got to see it performed, which no. I, I find so interesting. Yeah, um, it's Peter Keene. Um, Keen, he's okay. the young man who wrote the libretto, so he wrote all the words and the poetry um, that you see in even in our ad- adaptation. We tried to use as much of the original as we possibly could. And then Victor Ullmann was the um, composer of the opera. And I told, um, you, I, I told you my German's terrible. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's we we actually went to um, the Czech Republic and visited the concentration camp and 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 visited a lot of places that uh, Peter Keen had lived in Prague, and that's kind of where we got to pick up the pronunciation, make sure we had it right. Uh, so don't blame you because I think I was saying very similar things when I first picked the project up. But what was that um, like to go there? Because you know, after because by then I'm sure you were familiar with the opera and what was going on in it. What was it like to physically be there where this was written? It was, it was very affecting. It was very strange. Um, this the story that really, really kind of made everything click for me, um, because we'd been reading about these these gentlemen, um, Peter Keen and Victor Ullman. Um, as you know, research for the book and Peter Keene in particular, because he'd written the libretto and the, the words were what we were adapting. You know, the one thing comics doesn't have is sound. So we couldn't do a whole lot with the score. Um, so we've been reading the words a lot and doing research into these, these people, who they were, what their lives were like, what the opera meant from their point of view. And um, so we, we go to Prague and uh, we hear that Peter Keene's apartments from when he stayed in Prague as an art student have been turned into a hotel. And we were like, oh, we have to stay there. We have to, right? Like (laughs) it's too good of an opportunity to pass up. And so we book those rooms and and we get to Prague and we, we take our, our cab to the hotel and the hotel isn't a hotel at all. It's a dormitory. 
Oh. It's a dormitory for a college, and it's still a dormitory for a college. It's a huge building. It's beautiful inside with a lot of the original features still present, and they've just converted part of it into like a hostel-like hotel. So I got to my room, and it was exactly like the dorm room that I stayed in when I was an undergrad. It had two beds. It had a little kitchenette, you know? I mean, just blank hallways that all looked the same as we walked to the room, and and we met up to go to dinner that night and we were standing in the the lobby with you know 21 year old kids kind of coming down the stairs and chitter you know they're all in good spirits they're great getting ready to go out for the night mm-hmm. and it really hit me that peter keen who wrote this book he was murdered at, at 25 years old in 1944 um he he was like like I teach at a college. He was in every way just like all of my college students, and we were standing there in the exact same place he had stood, surrounded by what would have been his contemporaries at the time. And it really it really set the whole thing alight. Like it made it alive. You know, you you realize that like this isn't just stories about people in the past. It's not just black and white photos. Like they're wearing old fashioned clothes, but they were just people you know, and they were caught up in the the turn of history in a way that they couldn't really understand. And instead of kind of surrendering to despair, they just kept making things. And uh, this opera is one of the things they made. I, I, you said something I didn't know. And when I, I read the, the, there was a press release on it and said that they didn't live to see him perform. I didn't know he was murdered. Yeah, they they were both interred in the Terrazin concentration camp in Czech Republic um, until 1944, when both Victor Ullmann and Peter Keen were uh, transported to Auschwitz and murdered there. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. wow. Wow. That, that, that makes this all the more poignant. Wow. Oh, man, that's something like that. Well, let's yeah. dive into the book, because there's a whole bunch okay. of stuff that I'm dying to to talk about. Now, uh, one of the things we should mention is that the the, the characters, uh, let's see, the uh, character designs were by Ezra Rose, mm-hmm. and the architecture of Tezrin and Prague uh, are, are used to craft visuals draped in passing shadows, as you say in, in, in the release. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated... So there's a page on here uh, very early in the book. It's page seven, according to the, the version that I have. And it says on the top, cast of characters. And uh, I, I highly recommend pay attention to that page because it's going to be, it's going to help you get more out of the story if you actually sit and read what they say because the descriptions are very important. And I. <laughs> Not everybody is. Uh, <laughs> no, I said I don't want to spoil that. There's a the, the the very top is where it says cast of characters. There is you see the loudspeaker, yeah, which is described as your narrator and the voices of the unseen. It's just a a box, like a speaker <laughs> box, and yet that's the one that's doing the speaking and stuff like that. It is now. Is this something that Ezra came up with, or is this is this what speakers might have looked like uh, in in the the, the uh, this kind of time? I'm just curious about that. So Ezra did come up with a design um, based on um, this Nazi radio that uh, they had tried to sell so that they could 
make propaganda announcements at will over this radio. (laughs) And um, the loudspeaker had initially been designed off of that. And I definitely simplified the design quite a bit. Um, You know, when you know you're going to have to draw something, you know, a couple dozen times, uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) making it something that you know you can repeat is is helpful. But um, so I I simplified the design a little bit. And um, we did aim at it being a little bit more utilitarian because it's it's meant to be blank, right? Like the voice that comes out of it, it doesn't matter who's speaking on one end, the voice that comes out is always the same. Because as I remember from my my history of uh, World War II is that uh, their intent was to have one of these in every house so that they could propagandize. Yeah. Every everybody every German family would have to sit and listen, and they were the one that controlled what the content was. So wow, that's okay. That adds a lot to that right there. Now we start to go down the characters, and the very first one, of course, appropriately enough, <laughs> and the name just gets me. It's called Emperor Overall. Which I think, of course, all emperors tend to be overall, which I think is quite a good thing. And the description really gets me. It says, locked away, as we've talked a little bit about, locked away in his fortress tower. No one has seen him for years, but all have felt the cruelty of his reign. Uh, the, the, I, I know this is, you weren't the one that came up with the design, but did you happen to know where some of these characters came from? Like, are they based on people? Or did Ezra come up with these kind of out of uh, imagination? How did that happen? So Ezra definitely, um, Dave came with really strong um, suggestions right off the bat, you know, and um, especially around death and life, we had some sources to to pull from um, that had survived the concentration camps. But overall, uh, the emperor, he was a little trickier. Um, so there were some guidelines Ezra did a ton of historical research. And one of the things we knew is that, uh, Victor Ullmann, the composer had served in world war one. And a lot of his critiques, um, were about sort of the, the rulers of world war one, Kaiser Wilhelm, Wilhelm, um, those kind of figures, um, like they were all kind of wrapped up in in the project as well. So we we pulled a lot from those references too. Uh, so one of the things that you'll note with Ember overall is that he's got these epaulets over his shoulders that have like little frills, you know, like tassels that right. are just the epaulets are way, way wider than his shoulders are <laughs> um, to make him look broader. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his waist is like very snatched in with a belt. Um, he always wears white gloves, um, even though he doesn't see anybody. You know, nobody sees him. Um, so he's he's very pretentious. That's you know his design um, is very intentionally pretentious. It's about looks and it's about making it seem like he's bigger and more important and more impressive than he actually is. And he's older. He's older. He's an older gentleman and stuff like that. But you, you, you're right. One of the things that, that impressed me about the book was that he never has contact with any living beings. No, even he's, he's literally welded into a room at the top of his tallest tower. Mm-hmm. And even his mirror, he's covered with a curtain because he can't stand to even look at himself. Um, you know, Emperor overall sees people as numbers and figures and and parts of an equation that he can just push around until it says what he wants it to say um 
And that's kind of the crux of his character. So he's kind of an accountant, basically. <laughs> the accountant of death and doom. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> mm. But, you know, I, I, we started to record, we, before we started to record, we talked a little bit about this. And I, I this character reminds me so much of Hitler. Mm-hmm. The way that he, the, the whole business that Hitler rarely had contact with, even though he would come out and be amongst the crowds and stuff like that, he never really spoke to people except for the people he wanted to speak with. And I got a lot of that from that, from, from this emperor, because he, you know, we see him several times in the book. And it's, uh, by the way, how many pages are in this book? I, it's something important to. Um, it's to 107 know. pages of comic and then mm-hmm. um, another 20 and a few pages of some essays and additional materials in the back of the book. So if you wanted to see a couple of the um, images that inspired these designs, they're there. And then um, Dave has an essay. We have an essay from a a music historian in Switzerland about the score. Um, We have some pictures of the score um, that was written on the back of uh, prisoner transfer papers. Um, uh, Some artifacts like that, that are also in the back of the book. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the other characters, in fact, several of them are symbols. Mm -hmm. much more than individuals. the, the, The one immediately to the right of emperor is the emperor's propaganda machine, who is actually a person. It's a female who's called the drummer. And she's described as overall's propaganda machine, like radio or television. She isn't quite real. And one of the things that really got me right away was that she doesn't have pupils in her eyes. No. Yeah. She doesn't have pupils. She usually has either a, totally blank face or a very sinister smile. Mm. Um, yeah, she's, she's not really a character with a will of her own mm-hmm. um, as much as, you know, kind of an envoy of the emperor's, you know, intentions, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it does well. So she, she's there to, to tell what people want her to say. Yeah, very Which much. Is- and she's, she's there to, to chase down any any dissent as well, which you kind of see later in the book when mm-hmm. when people start to think differently a little bit, um, mm-hmm. specifically the the soldier character. Mm. That can't Speak- that we we can't take that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the soldier, that's the next one. As I go down the pages, a soldier and he's got a gas mask on, trudging from one battlefield to the next. He's symbolic, kind of, of the soldiers, and we we know that the. In war, there's a lot of of, uh, of people who die and and don't survive, and so it's interesting that he's got a gas mask on, uh, because you know oftentimes people in, in in war people use chemical warfare and stuff like that, and this is to try to protect him from that. Or now I say him is 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 this a, a him or is this a her or is this sort of a, uh, a generic yeah. type person? I think you know the the soldier is a him and the worker is a her and life would be a they, you know, there's no, there's no gender for life, but the, the soldier is, um, yeah, like you say, sort of a symbol, right? Opera has a, a long tradition of using metaphors and kind of archetype characters. And, um, 
in some ways that makes it a little bit difficult to, to adapt because you know you want to tell an engaging interesting story and when the character is kind of just a symbol for something uh, that can make it a little bit harder so we did try to add some extra depth to the soldier character as as we we adapted it and um, bring in all other influence from um, history as well but the soldier is also a medic um, the soldier's <laughs> job in the war is to to heal people. And uh, when, when death goes on strike and no one can die, everybody's trying to die right at the point where he's trying to keep everyone alive. Um, <laughs> the opera is actually really darkly funny that way. It's, it, it's, there are a lot of jokes, surprisingly funny jokes in the opera that made it into the book. And one of them is, is uh, that kind of dichotomy. Hmm. It's so interesting because uh... You know, it, it, it medics. A lot of people who are medics are not well. They're non-combatants. They don't. They don't carry weapons and they don't fight. They usually just are there to try to to save people. So that, that's an interesting way to look at it. Now, the worker you mentioned. It says a worker turned rebel who's never known a world without war. And it's a woman, and she's got a mask over her face. Well, the kind of the mask that we wore during the uh, uh, pandemic kind of stuff. She's carrying a gun, a, a it looks like an AK-47 type gun. It's a uh, PPSH-41. Mm. It's a specific <laughs> Russian weapon that was, um, you know, it, you found it a lot on the Eastern Battle uh, Theater. And uh, we particularly chose it because uh, Jewish resistance fighters uh, favored that weapon because it was easy to get a hold of and there was a lot of ammunition. So we armed the worker with it. Hmm. Now, I'm, I'm, of course, the soldier is male and the worker is female. And, of course, during the wars and stuff like that, a lot of the people who worked in plants and stuff like that, who were workers, were, were females, were women, because the men were off fighting the war. Yeah, and, and you'll actually, um, you know, Ezra was was so, so detailed. Um, the worker's whole outfit is modeled after um, uh, women who worked in bomb bomb-making facilities. Um, so it's this sort of loose jumpsuit that's gathered into these tight boots, but the dupe boots have steel toes, um, this cap to keep the hair in that doesn't always work. Um, yeah, the workers' outfits very much modeled after, um, you know, women who went to work uh, in factories uh, as as uh, soldiers were shipped out during World War II. Which people didn't think could happen, that women could work in factories and surprise. <laughs> yeah, meets Good. must, right? Yep. Now, the next one is the one that just fascinates me probably the most of all. Death takes the form of a veteran, exhausted by the constant carnage. I, as we were saying before we, we were started to record, he's overworked. He's got so much death going on. He's got so much to do and so many people are dying that he decides to stop. He says, I can't handle this anymore. There's so much. And he's, his, his, head is the shape of a in fact his whole body looks like it's a, a skeleton mm-hmm. he's got a skeleton head and and you can see in in the picture that's on the cast of characters he's holding his his hand up and his hand is just nothing but the bones yeah but he's he's wearing a veteran's outfit now i don't know if this is something you're gonna know but which veteran outfit is he wearing is he wearing is this something created for the show for the series or was it in the opera or what was that? Where'd that come from? That's a really good, that's a really good question because it is the least recognizable outfit 
right off the bat. Um, because what he's wearing is a Shaco hat. Um, and again, you know, a lot of this is throwbacks to World War One, uh, a little bit less, you know, World War Two. Um, it's one of the interesting things about the book itself is, you know, these folks were they were in the middle of World War Two and they were they were in a concentration camp. So they didn't really see the front lines. They didn't really see um, a lot of the, the the things that we associate with World War Two. Um, so as they were writing this story about the war they were in, they were thinking back to the wars they were familiar with. Um, and this particular design of death, um, we adapted from a little comic that Peter Keen drew, um, which is, you, you'll find it in the back of the book. Um, you know, if you pick a copy up, there's this little comic that Peter Keen drew about making this opera. And it has a picture of death in this Shaco hat with this long jacket looking very dramatic. Um, and it's about what happens when, you know, his collaborators come by and then the censors come by. And then, you know, um, at the end, the, the end result is instead of this very dark, dramatic skeleton figure, it's a dancing, it's a dancing skeleton wearing a mask with a tutu and a, a flower crown on, you know, he was very obviously protective of the the script he'd written. So mm-hmm. we have this, um, this death figure wearing the, the veterans uniform from many, many years before. And uh, death actually talks about how many millennia he's been at his job and all the ways that he used to love war, that he hates it now. Damn. I'm sort of intrigued as to why he's wearing a veteran's outfit. Mm. Is there is there a, a purpose for that? Is there a reason why he's wearing it? Is it because a lot of people in the war died and that made in many countries that made them considered to be veterans? Is that why that is? I'm just sort of fascinated by that. You know, I I don't have any um I don't have any direct um, sources that would answer that question, but I can tell you what my interpretation of it has been through the whole project, Okay, which is that, uh, in, in the story, death sees, um, dying as a good thing. <laughs> That's his job. Right? right. And he, he enjoys doing his job and war used to be a good thing because it was what made deaths happen. And, um, he used to be out at the front of the battle lines, leading the wars on and, and, you know, being a proud member of the, the fighting force, so to speak, you know, because he's just running through the battlefield, taking people up um, to the afterlife. And it's this, this new pace of war with all these machines where people are dying in incredible numbers, incredibly fast, um, way faster than he can keep up with. That's what's kind of, ruined the balance of di- uh, life and life and death and uh, ruined the job of being death for him. Um, that's that, what's that, exhausted him is the pace. That, that, this was written before the atomic bomb was dropped, wasn't it? Ni- 1943. Yeah. Wow. They had not even seen, they had not even seen the atomic bomb fall. Um, and yet they, they knew already that the, this new technology um, the way that um, planes were being dispersed, the way that tanks were being dispersed, you know, had completely altered the way that um, that warfare was being was warfare was being done. That's um, that, that this how 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 very uh, prescient they were. They they realized what was coming. 
was going to be so amazing. Now, the last character on this page is Life, as we mentioned. And uh, Life is, just, is embodied as a performer. I don't know what a P-I-E-R-R-O-T is. Piero. What is that? A Piero is a kind of a traditional clown. Um, hmm. There are these traditional forms of clowns and Pieros. Um, have a kind of particular outfit. It's that one that you see life wearing where one side's black and the other side's, you know, white or red or something. And ah. heroes are, are particularly known for um, being sort of mournful or sad, um, having a teardrop um, as part of their makeup. Um, <laughs> this is one of those interesting places where, you know, Dave had to go back to the source material a lot and make decisions because in the existing sort of translations, um, life is shown as a kind of clown called a Harlequin, where mm-hmm. we get Harley Quinn from, right. um, you know, wearing a more checkered outfit. Harley Quinns are usually more zany and they're a little bit more um, mischievous than a Piero would be. A Piero is kind of meant to be a little bit more mournful. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, by going back and reading through different translations and different versions and seeing some of the artwork that Peter Keene had done, um, uh, we kind of settled in on this Piero look for life, um, instead of the Harlequin, because we felt it was a little bit more in keeping with what Keene had intended. And there were some places where it seemed like maybe he had very specifically intended, this character to be a Piero, but it was, it was hard to say. Um, but yeah, so we've put life in this um, sort of traditional clown costume. That's very like rumpled and wilted and mm. pieces of it have fallen off. It says that uh, that person laughs through their tears. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting thing to, to bring out about. And then, then we start getting into the story and it's divided up into chapters and Spirit of Life, the very first chapter says, Spirit of Life wanders the streets, musing in song about how it's all gone wrong. And then we get to see some of the stuff in there. And really nice use of of color and and uh, the the way that the, you know, saying it's black and white, but the, the light shining down uh, on it, just amazing stuff, how it all goes. And it just, ah, this so amazing stuff how it goes and uh like i said sorry uh it's (laughs) one of the chat like like i had mentioned it before that the comics don't have sound it's the only thing that comics don't have and and i had run into p craig russell at a uh, convention in in columbus ohio Mm -hmm. and he's adapted several um operas so i i wanted to talk to him about it and he he brought this point up that in operas um, a lot of times the music is carrying the emotion, right, um, of the scene. And and <sighs> the characters might not actually even be really doing anything, like they're not taking any actions necessarily, but they're singing and the music has all of the information in it. And comics, because you don't have the sound, um, we needed to find different ways to bring that emotion into the book. Um, so we used, of course, the original words, but then we had to kind of look towards the lighting, like you say, and um, the the environments and sort of the performative acting of the characters to to visualize what it was that the music was doing um, in the original opera. Mm-hmm. 
Now, there's a wonderful page where Death declares that he's on strike, and he actually holds up a sign that is reminiscent of what we see a lot today. Uh, it says, no peace, no death. Later on, there's a little tiny version of death that says, unfair killing conditions. <laughs> See, that's the thing about this 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 thing. You just when you think you know where things are going, all of a sudden something comes up. And and there's another place where the emperor actually has a calculator. Yeah. And he's trying to figure out what to do with uh, how he's, uh, things are supposed to go. And gosh, I guess this, what, what also gets me too is whenever the the uh, uh, the speaker is going to speak, it goes allo allo hello hello basically uh, every time it's going to yeah. speak. In other words, hello, hello, I'm about to speak, kind of pay attention kind of stuff. So The hello, all- hello is like the big major musical theme of the, the opera. Oh, and, really? Uh, it's how the opera starts. There's a little interlude and then the loudspeaker character, whoever's singing that part comes on and says, hello, hello, and then <laughs> off to the races, you know, and, and it <laughs> just repeats again and again as that loudspeaker character continues to narrate. So, um yeah, we put a we put a lot of uh, time and thought into where those hello hellos were going to land. Um, <laughs> just great. Both, it's just go ahead. You're going to say something. Oh yeah, both for you know story purposes and for comedic effect. Sometimes it's just it's a really good joke. Wow, it's a, it's just something. And then we get into the soldiers and the workers, and farther than that, I don't want to go because that's going to spoil some stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's it's gosh so many surprises along the way and things that I, I i never expected and you're right there is this dark humor that that goes all the way along and uh let me just say that i enjoyed the way that it ended oh good because yeah. one of the things I, I always have trouble with, with with graphic novels and extended storylines, oftentimes they just sort of trail off to go on to the next, you know, to the next storyline, you know, book that's going to mm-hmm. come out, and the next graphic novel and stuff like that. This ends really interestingly. Very, I thought it was very thoughtful. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad that. to hear that. I mean, um, the because the opera does have an end, and we've included that end. Um, but we did add a little bit on so that um, it was a little bit more full and it's a little bit more satisfying um, <laughs> because the opera is pretty slim and uh, I'm really glad to hear that it, it worked well for you. It's, it's a, it's a very interesting end. just like the whole premise is interesting, you know, um, people die. You don't quite expect, you know, and right. um, things change in a way that, that you wouldn't necessarily see coming. Uh, so I'm glad that it worked for you. Yeah, it was just amazing too. And then of course we have pictures of the people who created the opera mm-hmm. are in there and drawings and stuff like that too, which really kind of humanizes it really well. And pictures of, of things that helped. And so it's, it's, it's the, the, this book, by the way, it's, it's going to sell uh, for twenty four ninety nine. Believe me, it's worth every penny. Because it's yeah. got all kinds of amazing. If if you want to think, you know, uh, and, and and 
uh, see, I like variety in my reading. And so this for me, like I said, it was just, it was just what I needed to read at the time when I started to read it. And I just could not leave it go because I was just dying to see how is this going to resolve? And it does resolve, like I said, in such a satisfying way. And I just, it's just so well done that it's, I have to highly recommend it because if anybody ever thinks about these, these topics and stuff like that, you know, especially now when we've got things happening uh, mm -hmm. around the world where there's all kinds of wars breaking out and things like that. This is, this is something I think a lot of people would really enjoy reading and, and I think would help them, you know, analyze and think about what was happening in the world today. Cause man, it's, it's it, just unbelievable. I mean, yeah, I, I think I'm glad you said that. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, it, it, that's also what drew me into the project too, you know, because it's, it's a really interesting story just by itself. Like if, if they didn't have any backstory, it would still be a fascinating, strange kind of unsettling story. And, um, but as an entry point to this kind of point in history, it's even more interesting um, because it is so poignant and it's so um, nuanced and one of the strangest things about it is the way we keep seeing it echoed today. You know, what we thought this book was going to remind people of when we started making it totally transformed halfway through making it and then totally transformed again, you know, just so many months ago. Um, because every every year we see things that are really not all that different than they were in 1944, 1943. Um, it's, it's, it's really strange experience to read the book and feel like, Oh my gosh, the, this is actually about today. This is actually about right now. Um, only it isn't at all. It's 80 years old. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's war has, has certain things that are consistent wherever it mm -hmm. happens. And I wanted to read, excuse me. I wanted to read this wonderful thing that quote that Neil Gaiman came in and said, this is beautiful and strange, both for what it is and what it isn't. As a story, it's fascinating and excellently told. As an artifact, it's heartbreaking and affecting. More than a footnote in Holocaust literature or a lost libretto given visual shape, it's a reminder of what art is for and how it saves and shapes us when everything else is gone. I thought, wow, that was a, a very profound and very nice way to to summarize this good thing because it's God. Oh, it, it, let me tell you having Neil Gaiman um, submit a quote for the book was just an absolute honor and a huge, huge privilege. Neil Gaiman's my all time favorite writer and to have it be so um, not just complimentary, but so specific to the book and really in, <laughs> It's like Neil Gaiman's an incredible writer or something, you know, um, uh, because he's just described it. He's just encapsulated it so well in what it what it can offer to people. It, it's just amazing, I have to say, uh, you know, because sometimes comics can be uh, lighthearted, shall we say. Yeah. Even when, when there's lots going on, there really is no death. Uh, even when somebody dies, they come back. All those kinds of things happen, <laughs> and that's not what happens in this one. This is I, the interesting thing to me. That, that, I won't go to the end, but there's something really fascinating to me at the very end that I just was like, "Wow, 
Yeah, uh, uh, something that yeah. uh, you'll see. It. It's you know, something great. I'm I'm so glad too that we got to partner with Burger Books and Dark Horse um, because I think you know if, if the project had ended up with Fantagraphics, who would have been a wonderful publisher, you know, but it would have ended up with a certain um, kind of audience. You know, sometimes <laughs> publishers have those those kind of audiences that really stick, you know, with those kind of uh, labels. And I'm really hoping that with Dark Horse's name on it and Karen Berger's name on it, that um, a lot more people will read it than normally may, may, may pick it up, you know, that it will end up in comic shops and not just on bookstore shelves, because I think comic readers are going to find something really, really interesting in here, something probably different than they've ever read. Um, which it, maybe that's a little bit of hubris, but I think the opera was different than anything I'd ever read. Um, so I, I think there's something there for for somebody to find, even if you've you've read every zombie story there is to read. And you know what else? I hope I know there's not a ton of them left, but I hope it ends up in libraries. Yeah. I think this would be yeah. an ideal book for a library. With somebody goes in there and they start looking for something interesting to read. I, I think this would be something that people would pull down, and like I said, they they wouldn't be able to to put it back until they got done reading it because it's just that amazing of a book. And I I just have to tell you, I I'm so glad I got a chance to read it because wow, I still think about it. I still think about all the things that happened and and the people, uh, <laughs> uh, emperor in particular. I I, I guess it, how interesting it is that. People who have the most influence, it seems like, are actually have the least contact. Yeah, that, that always that, that just got me. I just can't help but think about. Let that. me tell you, I loved drawing the emperor, and I loved designing the emperor's little room. I think the emperor's little cell is one of my favorite, like because it's so simple, and there's really not much to it at all. But it's if you were going to lock yourself away in a tower. And you knew that you were going to weld the door shut and you were never leaving again. You'd probably put in all of your most comfortable furniture, your best <laughs> bed sheets, your, your most comfortable chair. You know, you'd put in everything for ergonomics, right? So, because you're going to live there forever. But not Emperor overall. He didn't think about this at all. The chalkboard's too big to use comfortably. The chair is just a plain wooden chair. The desk is just a regular desk. He sleeps on a cot, you know, like a camp cot. Um, like he didn't give himself any luxuries at all. It's like he didn't really think about it. Um, meanwhile, he wakes up every day and puts on a full military uniform and with epaulets and gloves and he keeps his mustache together, you know, and he, he combs his, his comb over in place. And, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed embedding that sense that you were, you were trying, you were putting words to that. Like he's so disconnected mm-hmm. from what's important mm-hmm. um, that even his living conditions don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing book. I have to say, it, it, I'm still thinking about stuff that went in there, and I think people who pick it up too will, will really enjoy a thoughtful and uh, a deep examination of war and human nature, really. And 
what 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 we do to ourselves kind of in there it's just just a great 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 book it's called death strikes and there's a colon after that the emperor of atlantis and uh patrick this is this is a wonderful wonderful book i, I hope i get to see a lot more from you which reminds me are there other projects you're working on because this took you several years and of course you can see why it was just it's just so well put together are there other projects you're working on we should be aware of uh, thank you. Thank you so much for, for your kind words about the book, which you really, really mean a lot. And, um, for your kind words about my work. Um, I, I have uh, a pitch I just uh, actually sent off. I was working with a writer, uh, but we can't talk about it yet. And I started another pitch that's, um, uh, history based again. So I've got kind of two projects that could, could kind of take off, but nothing that I could, uh, talk about by name yet. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll get to see more work both in the, the realm of historical stuff and maybe in more fantastical stuff. Are you going to work with Dave again? I'm not sure that Dave, this has been Dave's passion project since he was a, a, a teenager <laughs> when he came across this opera um, in a collection of like suppressed music from the Nazi you know, era. I'm not sure Dave is going to make another comic. I have to ask him that. Uh, we'll find out. I would love to work with Dave again. It was great working with Dave. Um, Are you on social media at all? If, if people want to keep up with what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Instagram. Um, at, I'm at Plutarian underscore two. That's P-L-U-T-A-R-I-A-N underscore two. Um, and I'm also on Blue Sky, um, which not everybody's on. But um, if you're on Blue Sky, that's Plutarian2, P-L-U-T-A-R-I-A-N-2 dot B-S-K-Y dot social. Um, and you can fi- find uh, Dave on uh, Blue Sky as well at uh, Massive dot Blue Sky dot social. That's M-A-A-S-S-I-V-E. Um, yeah. Okay. I got to ask, where does Plutarian come from? <laughs> you know, everybody's online handles got have a kind of a stupid name. So uh, it's, it's because uh, when I was in sixth grade, me and my friends all decided that we were from different planets in the solar system. <laughs> okay. And mine was Pluto. And it has consistently been open on every social media platform I've ever been on. So uh, there's a Plutarian 2 on most things at one point in time or another. And that would be me almost every time. So you're one of a kind. Yeah. That's great. Well, all I can tell you, Patrick, is again, it's Death Strikes, The Emperor of Atlantis. And coming out from Burger Books, Dark Horse Comics, uh, once again, it's going to be in bookstores on January 23rd, and then the next day, the 24th, it's going to be in comic shops. So I highly recommend you get to get this book and uh, park down someplace when you got a little time and can dive into this thing, because it's going to be worth your investment of time. And yeah, I, I would expect that when this, you get done reading this, you're going to be sitting thinking about this for a, a good long time, because... I love stuff that makes me think, and this this does that quite well. So, Patrick, I can say is it's great stuff. I'm looking forward to stuff. If you come up with other things that you're going to be doing, let me know, and we'll talk some more in the future, and maybe a future episode and stuff. Just keep it up, the wonderful stuff you're doing. 
Thank you, Wayne. I really appreciate you having me on. I'll definitely stay in touch when uh, new projects come up. And uh, thank you again for all of the kind words about the book, too. It, it really means a lot. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but it's a symbol. Get the latest from the comics universe. News. Interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. And now it's time for my yearly holiday tradition, the playing of Twas the Dark Night Before Christmas. This video is actually available on YouTube. If you go to that site and look up Twas the Dark Night Before Christmas, you'll find it there. It's from the folks who do I'm a Marvel and I'm a DC kind of videos. And there are plenty of them. I think this is one of their first ones. What you really need to know is that there are three voices. The first one is Alfred. The second one, of course, is Batman. And the third one is Santa Claus. And it has an interesting holiday message that I like to communicate. So without any further ado, Twas the dark night before Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through Wayne Manor, not a sound could be heard, especially not laughter. There were no stockings hung and no tree filled with lights, not a single Christmas decoration in sight. Master Bruce in his costume, and I in my robe, were up late on the lookout for evils unknown. I missed Christmas, but he said he didn't have time. None at all ever since the tender age of nine. It saddened me watching him year after year, never taking in joy, only dealing out fear. I say, sir. I pleaded with all of my might. Master Grayson is having a party tonight. Master Drake and Miss Gordon are sure to be there. Why not leave this bleak cave and enjoy some fresh air? I've outgrown Christmas, Alfred. He answered each year. You can go if you want to, but I'm needed here. I sighed and walked upstairs to turn off the lights. Merry Christmas, I said. His reply was, Good night. I walked up to my bedroom, got under my sheets, and prepared to drift off into sweet, peaceful sleep. Suddenly a noise woke me up with such a clatter, I ran to my window for more on the matter. And what should my wandering eyes happen to find but a man in a sleigh with eight reindeer... No, nine! I was off to tell Master Bruce what I had spied. The fat man in the sleigh was in for a surprise. But it was my surprise. He had beaten me there. Just how fast was this man who could sled through the air? Who are you? Master Bruce yelled, demanding to know. The fat man's belly shook as he laughed. Ho, ho, ho! Don't you know? He asked, giving his heels a click. Santa Claus, Father Christmas, Kris Kringle, Saint Nick. The Batman moved slowly, not wanting to harm him. Right, Santa, let me take you back home to Arkham. But the man disappeared. He was gone in a flash, leaving only some traces of old soot and ash. Suddenly he was back just as soon as he'd left. This man was indeed quite fast in spite of his heft. I've come here in peace, said the man. Have no fear, Batman said. Then explain to me why you've come here. The jolly man laughed. Christmas time is at hand. I bring gifts of joy to everyone in the land. The good people come to me with their requests for their heart's desire, and I do my best. I need and want nothing from you, Batman said. Go and take to the streets of Gotham with your sled. The man in red snickered and gave him a wink. 
The person I'm here for is not who you think. I've no gift for you, though you've done much good, it's true. But the present I'm bringing tonight, well, is you. For when it comes to Christmas, you just disappear. And you leave behind all of the friends you hold dear. Bruce said, Hold on a minute now. That isn't true. I give plenty of presents at Christmas. I do. Gifts of cash, food, drink, clothes, anything I can find. So then how can you say that I leave them behind? <sighs> Giving gifts is something for which you've had a knack. But the spirit of Christmas is still what you lack. Your gifts are all sent, none given face to face, and you've never even accepted an embrace. If you're given a gift, you just turn it away, denying your friends what their hearts want to say. I know all of their feelings, and they all know mine. Gifts are simply a symbol for which I've no time. Well, Christmas is a time for which I've always felt. Allowing others in. Let your defenses melt. My defenses are fine. Batman furrowed his brow. It's just a sign of weakness to let them go down. Santa sighed. I have never, as long as I've lived, had to teach tis better to receive than to give. I came here to open up your heart and your mind. You're determined to keep them both closed up, I find. You're just too filled with anger and pain and regret. Probably about both of your parents, I bet. You'd tell them you loved them if you could somehow, just like all of your friends want to tell you right now. Oh, the gift of allowing love to be expressed is one of the greatest gifts that one can get. For the past is behind us, the future unknown. And the moment is all that we have to call home. And so, now I leave you with this to think on. And with that, this St. Nicholas fellow was gone. The master was silent. He was lost in thought. I wondered if this was what that fat man sought. Alfred, he said sharply, giving me a fright. You mentioned something about a party tonight. Soon we were dressed and ready and out on our way. Surely this was a miracle, one had to say. He had come bearing gifts and was going inside when he stopped to look up because he had spied... That Santa Claus fellow! I exclaimed in the dark. Master Bruce simply smiled, looked up, and said, Thanks, Clark. And I heard Batman say as he walked out of sight, Merry Christmas to all. Well, at least for tonight. Now you enjoy whatever holidays you celebrate this year. So happy holidays. I'll be back next week with more interviews. But until then, keep reading your comics.